Hi, I'm Maynika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Sarah Pauly's had some scary moments in her life. She was, after all, a child actor. Many of us remember her as the precocious Sarah Stanley from the 1990s show Road to Avonlea. But her life off-camera wasn't as idyllic, and her memories include more frightening experiences, like running through explosives on a movie set as an eight-year-old, surviving a violent incident and navigating the complicated aftermath, and recovering from a life-altering concussion. That's why Sarah Pauly is uniquely qualified to tell us to run towards the danger, which is the title of her first book. It's a collection of essays about the difficult moments in her life. And in it, she examines the relationship between memory and trauma and how revisiting uncomfortable moments, or running towards the danger, can be an act of empowerment. This is The Decibel. Sarah, it's it's so great to have you here today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm wondering, Sarah, through this process of of writing this collection of essays, do you feel like you think about fear differently? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that sort of runs through all of the essays is the overcoming of fear, or maybe more accurately, the living alongside fear. Instead of anxiety or fear being a stop sign, it became something to kind of move and live alongside. So I think that's something that connects the essays. And I think on the surface, many of them are about trauma, but I, but the reason for writing them, I think was because they were actually about recovery. Yeah, that's interesting. If you're talking about now kind of reflecting back on a lot of these incidents, because you gave a lot of thought to the ordering of the essays, they're not chronological. Uh, and you learn things in later essays that actually change how you understand things in earlier essays. At any point, did you doubt your own memories when compiling these stories and looking back on these these incidents? Yeah, I mean, I think memory is a really uh, difficult and at times slippery thing. I mean, I've made films about it. It's a bit of an obsession of mine. Um, I think it's really important to question our own narratives and our own memories. Um, I think it's also really important to believe in them as well. I think it's a really complicated set of things that you have to approach memory with. There's a sense of... Um, believing that your own versions and stories are valid. And I think hopefully also being secure enough in your sense of self that you can question things and be curious about, you know, how you framed things and why. And a lot of these memories, uh, a lot of the fears you talk about are actually very rooted in your own body in a lot of ways. You you talk about your concussion, um, your high-risk pregnancy, your scoliosis as well when you're younger. Has your relationship with your body, do you think, changed or the way you think about your body changed through writing this book? Yeah, I mean, I think I sort of avoided my body consciously for many years because it was a source of instability and pain for a lot of my life. I had endometriosis, which was um, very intense and sometimes debilitating, you know, certainly the scoliosis. I've always had a sense of being kind of weak physically. And I think that also got reframed, like the recovery that I had from my concussion really depended on me thinking of myself as someone who was strong enough to move towards the things that caused discomfort. And that was not a way I had um, identified before as somebody who was strong enough to move towards discomfort. I usually ran away from it. 
Yeah, can I ask you about that story? Because uh, the essay "Run Towards the Danger," which is the title of the book as well, is is about your concussion and and kind of facing that fear, if we can put it that way. Can you can you tell us what "Run Towards the Danger" really really means? Yeah. So originally, it was um, medical advice from uh, a concussion doctor that um, basically he said instead of lying down in a dark room every time you get symptoms or backing away from the things that cause you distress alongside this very carefully planned treatment that he gave me to help scaffold this, he was basically like, you need to do more of the things that are hard for you, which isn't, again, this is not general concussion advice and and people who have a concussion shouldn't just follow this blindly and neither should the relatives of people who have, people in their life who have concussions say, just do the things that are hard for you. I also had a very specific treatment that went alongside this and that's really important to point out. Um, but basically, Alongside this treatment, I was to go into the environments that hurt the most. So I had to go to parties. I had to go to grocery stores. I had to take the filter off of my computer screen that was helping to filter the the blue light, which was irritating my head. I had to do all of the things that were hardest for me in order to get stronger at them because the more I was avoiding things, the harder they were getting for my brain. That was a huge shift for me in terms of how I looked at my life. And I think that when I recovered from my concussion, which you know had been plaguing me for three and a half years, suddenly it was gone in six weeks with no symptoms and, you know, able to do more than I had before in better shape than I'd been before my concussion. I suddenly sort of realized that's how I was approaching everything in my life. I was moving towards challenges. I was doing the things that actually freaked me out a little bit. I mean, I, I was always really scared of driving on highways and just suddenly noticed I was driving on highways more, you know, like I was Mm. actually gravitating towards and excited by things that had previously scared me off. And that was a huge shift in my life and I think led to the the writing of and the completion of this book, which I think I'd been writing in drips and drabs for years and years, but it was so daunting, both the idea of telling these stories to myself and sharing them with other people. I, I think that this whole new methodology of Run Towards a Danger really made its way into my ability to look at things and to share things in a way that I hadn't before. Hmm. How did you get that concussion, by the way? I am. I was at my local community center and I was, it was after a swim and I went to uh, look for a blow dryer I had left in the lost and found bin. And there was this giant poster that was like shoved right up against lost and found. So you had just kind of squeeze in there and right over top of lost and found bin was a huge fire, fire extinguisher. And I kind of quickly stood up to take off my coat. The fire extinguisher dislodged and fell on my head. And so um, yeah, it was a, a fairly big smash over the head with a fire extinguisher. Oh, yeah, that would that would do it. So, yeah, this is interesting to hear you describe that story and eventually talk about your response to it. So the, the opposite of kind of avoiding the fear or the things that seem to be dangerous. I want to take this back to actually the very first essay in your collection, which is called Alice Collapsing. And it goes over your time performing the role of Alice at the Stratford Festival in in Alice Through the Looking Glass. You talk about stage fright throughout that piece. I am not an actor myself, but I am a singer and I performed on stage as a kid. And and I know what that's like. And and every time you get on stage, yeah, stage fright is such a huge part of that world. And it's always kind of, Mm -hmm. it's a bit of a mind game. You play with yourself constantly. Mm -hmm. And when I was reading this essay, it struck me that it seemed like you didn't really feel you were allowed to be scared of going on stage. Mm-hmm. Is that a, is that an accurate way of putting it? Yeah. I mean, I think I felt a lot of shame around it. It was my first big play. I was working at Stratford with these brilliant veteran actors, all of whom were very supportive and would have been incredibly supportive of me if they'd known I was suffering from stage fright and probably would have had a lot of great tools and ways of helping me. 
But I just felt so ashamed for having the fear. And I do think this is a common thing that the thing that can hurt the most is not the thing itself we're feeling, but the shame we feel about feeling it. And I think that applies a lot to fear. So I just didn't admit it to anybody. Um, and so it was this sort of increasing terrifying thing where I was the lead in this play in Stratford with really no theater experience at all. And this, uh, this fear sort of grew and grew and grew and it grew in the dark and it grew in silence. And I think when things grow in the dark and in silence, they can get really big and scary. Um, and so it was sort of a disastrous experience in the end for me. Um, and, you know, again, it's something that I push myself to do now. I push myself to do on stage appearances when that is for me the most terrifying thing. And I just kind of go, well, that's a sign to do more of it. That <laughs> like, you know, that's just a sign that that's something that'll be really interesting because what's the worst that can happen ultimately, right? Like a big public massive failure, hmm. whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, like you live, you have good friends, you're sort of okay. What about you? How did your, so what happened with your stage fright? Like how did it manifest itself? And then how did you get through it or did you? I mean, it was always kind of in, in little bits, I would say, but it's, and it's, you know, you start, I think I started performing when I was eight. So, wow. you know, an age you talk about in this book as well. Um, and you just, you kind of, yeah, I think every time you go on, it's just, I kind of have to get myself into the mental space of it. And sometimes you're more scared than others. Um, but again, it's one thing that I didn't really, in some ways, I thought if I would talk about it, it would make it worse because it's almost like acknowledging it. And so it was very, it's a very interesting thing to like mm -hmm. think about the reasons, I guess, why you don't, you don't want to share those details or you don't want to share that information. It's so interesting, right? Because it's like, it, it does make it worse to keep it private, but the instinct is it'll somehow make it worse to share it. And it, yeah. I think it's the opposite with all of these <laughs> things. It's just so, I don't know why we're so programmed to think that speaking something aloud will make it worse. I'm so curious about that. You also talk about hiding your fear. I, I want to kind of go into another essay you talk about in this book um, when you go through your experience of filming The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And you said you learned very quickly to hide your fear on that set. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like there were a lot of scary things happening on that set while you were filming that. Um, can you just give us, a, I guess, some understanding of, of what was going on on that set, Sarah, that, that was so scary to you as a child? Sure. Yeah. I was eight years old and I was in, you know, Terry Gilliam. I was a huge fan of Terry Gilliam. And so was my family of his films. And there were these big, giant, fantastical films that he made. And the film that I was in, which shot in Italy and in Spain, um, there were a lot of special effects and a lot of them were manual. It was like, you know, lots of running through explosions, lots of being in very cold tanks of water for long periods of time. Um, at least one trip to the hospital after explosives went off too close to me. So I was terrified. I mean, I was terrified for my life. And it wasn't only a childhood perspective that led to that level of fear. I don't think I think some of the adults felt that way as well. I think there were a lot of situations that felt very dangerous to a lot of people. And it was pivotal. I mean, it was it was pivotal for me to have had that experience of feeling like, I guess, unprotected and put in situations where my safety felt like it was being taken more lightly than the interests of a production. Hmm. And as an adult, many years later, you you actually 
wrote to the film's director, Terry Gilliam, sharing your your thoughts on that experience and saying this, you know, this was a very scary experience. And he got back to you and basically said, you know, even though you may have thought things were dangerous, you weren't in any danger. That That's mm-hmm. not the case. How did you feel when you got that response basically saying you're you're misremembering? Well, the thing is, is like it, he was quite friendly as well in the email. So the first thing I would say is what he didn't come back with was outrage and outright defensiveness. And he did acknowledge a few things in those emails. And so I kind of want to give him credit for that because I think a lot of people, A, wouldn't have responded to the email or B, would have just denied everything. And he didn't. He did admit there was one situation that got really out of control and was dangerous and that it was a a screw up and he apologized for it. But yes, he does say, you know, do you remember when, where it's your stunt double and where it's you, you know, you weren't really any, any real danger. I'm paraphrasing here. You know, I, at first, when I got those emails, really saw what he was acknowledging, not what he wasn't acknowledging. As years have gone on, yes, I do see that he's also kind of denying certain things and maybe even being a bit gaslighty about it. But I think by the time I realized that, um, my own experiences have been validated by so many people that it wasn't hurtful to me. Like it, it did say something about Terry to me that he wasn't acknowledging it. But, you know, Eric Idle the special effects supervisor, Richard Conway, you know, would all back up and validate my version of events, I think, more than than Terry's in this instance. I think I'm, I hope I'm correct in in saying that. But certainly they have through texts and emails and, and Eric publicly has said, yes, she's right. She was in danger many times. So I think that if you feel witnessed and if you feel like you have that kind of reassurance that your memories are not only your own, it's a lot easier to manage um, other people may be denying them. I, I do want to ask you about one particular essay uh, that's garnered a lot of headlines since the book came out. The one where you detail the traumatic incident with former CBC host Gian Gameshi. The essay is it's really about the decision making process you went through after several women came forward accusing Gameshi of sexual assault. Uh, and, and he was later acquitted in court. Um, but ultimately, you decided not to come forward yourself at that time. Do you ever question your choice to include this essay in this book? I mean, I think it's the one I was most nervous about sharing for many, many reasons. Um, I think I've been really thrilled with the conversation that's come out of it because I think that we don't hear from people very often who decide to not come forward and to look at what that decision-making process looks like and how um, difficult an experience that can be to kind of look ahead and know how hostile and arduous your encounter with the legal system might be if you come forward um, with a story that's really common, which is to say a story in which you're not the perfect witness or the perfect victim who's behaved in completely consistent ways, where your memories are somewhat inconsistent, where your behavior post the traumatic experience is friendly. I think that that's really hard for people to understand, but it's extremely common. And so I think a lot of people don't come forward looking at how these interactions after the fact, how their memories, what they remember and what they don't remember will be judged in a sort of public setting, I think a lot of people grapple with how they will be judged and viewed and decide not to come forward. And I think certainly watching what the women went through who came forward was really horrifying um, for a lot of people. And I think that I've always wanted to 
show the ways in which my own story echoed theirs in which my own inconsistencies and, you know, the friendly emails I sent him in, you know, years later or interactions I had at social events with him, how ridiculous that would have looked on the stand and how easily my story would have been discounted because of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the main reason for wanting to share it was to show how closely it echoed the stories that they told. And I think I felt really complicated about having not been able to do that at the time. I had a toddler and a newborn. I knew that I wouldn't be able to handle it from a mental health standpoint, what those women ended up going through, and that I couldn't protect my kids from whatever I went through um, emotionally. And so I had to make a really, really hard call and one that I haven't been completely at peace with. And what I felt I could offer at this late date was a portrait of what it looks like for women who don't come forward and what that decision-making process looks like. And also to just add to the conversation of, yeah, it does look inconsistent. It does look perplexing. It's the, the thing itself still happened. Like all of this confusing behavior that looks so strange from the outside can happen alongside a very real traumatic experience with someone. It doesn't mean that the thing itself didn't happen. Since this story has been public, have you heard from Xi'an? No, I haven't. So this idea that we're talking about of, uh, of facing your fears, it's really what you're doing with this book. You're, you're putting it all out there. You're laying it very bare. Um, is there anything, I guess, that's very different about this act of art that, like, I guess, facing fear maybe in a different way than, than in other acts of art that you've done before? Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is what I've always wanted to do. I mean, I feel like it's my most like clear and authentic expression of myself is to be sitting alone, writing something. It's what I've wanted to do since I was seven years old. So that's thrilling and also terrifying because, you know, what if everybody hated the book and this thing that I would put off and put off um, while I did other things and then finally had the courage to do didn't go very well. Um, It's been terrifying, but also just so thrilling to finally kind of embark on, I think, what I would have done and what I would have wanted to do had I not ended up being a child actor and ended up in the film industry in this sort of circuitous way that wasn't self-directed. I mean, I'm very happy to make films. I love making films. I, I hope to make more. But writing feels like an expression of maybe the life I would have had if I hadn't been a child actor. And that feels really important to me to have gotten to to go down that path. Sarah, you've touched on this a bit, but I, I, I do want to ask you directly. Uh, these are these are very personal stories. There's a lot to putting these stories out in the world. Is there anything that, I guess, scares you about having them out for everyone to, to read? In a way, I couldn't think about it too much before doing it, or I don't think I would have done it. So I think there's a lot of things to be afraid of. It's also kind of amazing. Like, it's also an amazing experience to have the people in your life actually know a whole bunch of stuff about you that, you know, maybe you haven't told them the whole story. Maybe you haven't expressed the whole narrative. There's also been something kind of magical about that connecting with the people in my life. Um, and, you know, I think for me, the point of making a film or writing a book or doing anything is about the stories you get to hear from other people. And I think because I have laid myself bare in this way and I have made myself re- really vulnerable people are sharing their stories with me. And that for me is like such a delight to get to hear things from people's lives that they may not have shared before. Um, I've kind of loved, again, the the dialogue that comes out of something like this is kind of the goal. I think it's not, it's almost like the book or the film isn't the end product. It's 
what's the conversation that comes out of it and is it fruitful? Does anything scare you anymore, Sarah? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, the thing is like, the thing is this book isn't about like not having fear anymore. I think the thing is this book is like you move ahead because of your fear, despite your fear in, you know, alongside your fear, there's no, like, I don't think there's any erasing fear. And I think having some fear is healthy. I just think listening to it all the time isn't the best way of moving through the world. I think sometimes it's worth taking note and maybe changing course of action. But I think too often I at least sort of interpreted fear as a reason to not do something. And now I kind of, I kind of veer towards the other side of that. That might be a reason to try it. (laughs) I mean, not stupidly and not recklessly, but I think like, it's always a conversation then in my head. Like also, I think if you've experienced anxiety in your life, you can sometimes like confuse excitement with anxiety. You know what I mean? Like sometimes excitement, it, it can feel the same way. And if you're used to sort of being fearful of your own anxiety, you can feel excitement and go, oh, like this is going to send me down this sort of like certain pathway of emotion that I need to avoid. But sometimes excitement is actually excitement. Sometimes it's positive. And I think we can sometimes frame it as anxiety when it's actually something that it's actually a signal to move towards. I mean, this gets right back to the idea of running towards the danger then. It's like finding, I guess, finding these ways. Is this accurate to say finding these ways in your life to actually face the things that you don't always want to face? Yeah. And, and I think not, not always accepting our own limitations. I mean, I think to a certain degree, that's really important. And someone who's, as someone who's experienced illness and pain and, you know, medical issues in my life, I think sometimes it's important to accept your limits and not always be fighting them. But I also think it's really important to know the moment where you can challenge them a little and go like, yeah, I'm listening to my body. My body's telling me to slow down, but does my body listen, need to listen to me too? And go like, actually, I can do this thing. Actually, I can push through. And again, I don't think that should be taken to the extreme. I think we've come out of a, you know, a time, our parents and grandparents, where it was all about push through and there was no sense of sensitivity or listening to one's body. But I do think that I have encountered in the last few years, a culture where it's so much about listening to your body and so much about listening to your limitations and so much about self-care sometimes that I think that we deprive ourselves of the opportunity to challenge ourselves sometimes in ways that can be exhilarating and can kind of show us that our our outer limits are further out than we thought. Sarah, it's been so good to speak with you. Thank you so much for chatting with me. So good to talk to you too. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.